Hello and welcome to the Kids Media Club podcast. I'm Andy Williams. And I'm Joe Redfern. Welcome along. Uh, and our guest today has been brought in by our third co-host, Emily Horgan. So I'm going to let you tee up our guest, Emily. Hi, everyone. Yeah, today's guest is uh, Christian Hughes. Uh, he's the creator of Gecko's Garage, which in my view is a bit of a unicorn in today's uh, kids' uh, content landscape. Uh, this, it's an IP that came up on YouTube, hence my vague obsession, because I love finding uh, new IPs on YouTube. And I found this, uh, I found this before meeting Christian a, a, a year or so ago. Um, and I was delighted to meet him because I had already clocked Gecko's Garage and gone, hey, how, look at you, you've got legs. Um, it was acquired by Moonbug and today you can see it on YouTube, of course, but also on Netflix, on CBBS, and on iPlayer, and probably many more places to come, and many more places other than that. Um, Christian very amicably left Moonbug recently, so we're really happy to have him on here uh, to talk about his experiences. So thanks so much for joining us, Christian. Did I sum that up okay? Yeah, absolutely, totally. In a nutshell, it's great. Um, thanks for having me. Awesome. So Gecko's Garage originated on a YouTube channel that you started. Uh, back in 2015 called Toddler Fun Learning. So can you tell us a bit about what kind of jogged you to start your own YouTube channel, what your background was before um, and what was the process? And, and, and I'd love to, love to just kind of dive in on what that was like because 2015 was quite, kind of a different era. An age ago. <laughs> it was, yeah, it feels like an age ago. Um, yeah, so it wasn't my first YouTube channel. So um, it kind of goes back to uh, 2009 actually when I found out I was going to be a dad for the first time and did probably what most people do and completely like panic and look for advice. And I went on YouTube and was like, what am I getting myself into here? Um, I was, you know, really actually anxious about, you know, um, what life was going to be like and whether the baby would even like me and how much sleep am I going to get? And, you know, I went on YouTube and there was lots of uh, mums out there vlogging about their experience, but there were as far as I could see, no dads. And um, so I basically just kind of started um, vlogging about my anxieties. And then when Josh was born, um, I made a video called 24 Hours of the Newborn, um, which was basically, yeah, 24 hours condensed into like four minutes. Wow. And, the first 24 hours? Uh, no, not the first 24 hours. <laughs> Your family wouldn't have let me uh, film that, no chance. Um, <laughs> But um, I guess that was kind of the, my first video that I guess went viral. Um, I mean, I think now, like 12 years later, that's on like 18 million views or something. Um, and so I, I, I carried on sort of making videos on that channel, but, you know, for a couple of years. And then um, Josh had a, a baby sister called Poppy. And the the, the channel sort of, developed more into like a sort of family vlog channel and I was just kind of not comfortable with it um, and I, whilst I really enjoyed the process of creating content for YouTube I was very aware that I was kind of going down this road that I could see other people going down which was you know you're gonna have to film make, make a video of your family every day to really kind of cut through and um, it's basically your life becomes like a busman's holiday you're constantly working and editing and stuff um, my, my my background uh, is in production, so I at this time I was running a, a production company called Curly Productions, which uh, made um, online videos for companies. Um, so all this other stuff that was going on was like a sideline from my from my day job, which kind of when you're 
editing and making videos all day, you kind of don't want to be doing that <laughs> uh, about your family evenings and weekends as well. So, um, but at the same time, you know, when Josh and Poppy were, were three and two, I was looking for content for them to watch on YouTube and were, was blown away by the numbers that some of these uh, channels were getting and also kind of the standard of content back then. Um, they were sort of watching videos like that taught them how to say A to Z and zebra. And I was like, well, I don't really want my kids growing up with an American accent. So I just, yeah, like, I'm not an animator, um, uh, but I started making some little animations, just very basic kind of learning uh, videos um, really for them under the name Toddler Fun Learning on a, on a new channel. Obviously, your background is in production, but you, you were making for other people. What made you decide it was going to be YouTube? I mean, obviously, YouTube had, had been around, but what made you think, OK, I'm going to put these up on YouTube rather than uh, come up with a concept and try and sell it to a broadcaster, for example, or find a co-pro partner? What, what made you decide YouTube? Yes, yeah, good question. I mean, it, it probably sounds like that. That probably sounds like the, the way to do it, right? You kind of go and, and produce some uh, pitch something to a, a broadcaster that mm. just wasn't my background I wasn't in kids tv like you know I'd never been to the children's media conference and you know it just wasn't my background I knew nothing about that world right all I knew um you know we were uh, my day job I was producing content for clients who were putting their mm. content on YouTube that was the world I knew and I essentially we weren't actually putting the stuff on YouTube for them we were producing stuff and then they were doing it and I could sort of see what a bad job they were doing of it because they weren't um, doing any collateral around the launch of their videos on YouTube. They weren't tagging it correctly, um, you know, and then they kind of go to us, well, why hasn't that video gone viral? I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't work like that, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. So that was just kind of the world I was in, right? And, yeah. and, and I also just didn't have... The, the sort of funds to create something on a on a bigger budget. I was just doing it totally bootstrapped on a shoestring. Mm. And when did you start seeing success with with toddler fun learning? And when did you kind of see, when did you kind of go, okay, whoa, this is sustainable. Obviously, you'd had good success in your previous vlogging channel. Mm. It was a, it was a slow burn um, because I wasn't doing like one video a week. Uh, in the first year, in like twenty thirteen, I probably did like five videos and I, I would sort of leave it for a couple of months not even touch it and be busy and just kind of come back to it and go oh that video's got a hundred thousand views now um and um it was probably like so it wasn't until um the end of the first year we were probably getting about thirty-five thousand views a day uh, so it took pretty much a year to get to that number uh, and that was equating to like five quid a day. Um, so we saw, you know, and, and the great thing was that we weren't reliant on it. For, we had day jobs, right? So we didn't have to like um, put any pressure on ourselves to do this. It was just purely a bit of fun. And we looked at it like if it pays for a nice meal out once a month, then that's great, right? And if our kids love it too, then, you know, yeah. grand. Yeah, yeah and, and the kids was, were engaging with it. And then you know, we were starting to get sort of parents saying to us, you know, oh, I heard you're doing this. Um, my kid really likes it and stuff. So that was like, that was really nice. But I was, you know, at the back of my mind, I was super interested in this idea of passive income 
because you know my my other company was reliant on me being there going to locations we were filming and then we were editing and, and, and it reliant on literally um, on a per project fee I was just interested in kind of launching this business which potentially could provide us income while we while we slept animation has a reputation for being something that doesn't really lend itself to youtube on the whole because it takes longer to to animate something than to just um video something on a camera how how did you make it work with animation in terms of just the high volume and the quick turnover that youtube encourages people to to work within yeah i mean you're totally right i mean like a year later i was kicking myself that i didn't just do like toy unboxing <laughs> uh, like, i'm like i could play with toys uh in front of a camera yeah. fine i could do that um but uh yeah it was well firstly i was doing everything myself so i wasn't paying anyone to do it um so that was kind of uh and i think whilst you know the illustration and animation was shoddy I think maybe kids liked the fact that it looked like it had been drawn by a child. Maybe there was something about it. Um, Earthy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the and the first few videos, we actually we did a, a mix of animation and live action. So Number Zoo, which was I think the second video we ever did, was literally just like a uh, an animated zoo. You'd zoom in on a different animal, like a lion, and then you'd see some live action footage of that uh, animal, and then you sort of count them out. So it's super basic. Um, just purely for that reason to like keep it economical um, and then moving like a bit further ahead when when we when we looked at like Gecko's Garage um, that we use techniques like uh, Adobe Character Animator which is literally like um, you perform Gecko like a puppet in front of a webcam um, and it does automatic lip sync so you basically what would normally take you know weeks to animate one character you were doing in the space of like an hour um it's like super super cheaply so whilst now i look back and go um oh god i mean the quality is pretty awful what it what it allowed us to do was test the format mm. it, it showed that it didn't need to be like the highest end animation what we were doing was we were putting like a minimal viable product out seeing what the response was was and reiterating from there. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. And you were tracking the data through all this, Christian, I oh, assume. I was like obsessive with it, <laughs> obsessive with it. Um, so I would, every single episode we, we put out, I would just, you know, look every day. It got, it actually got a bit of a problem at one point because I had the YouTube um, like channel manager app on my phone, which I had to delete because I was literally just every time we launched a video, I was I was just checking it every five minutes. So I, I deleted <laughs> it back in like 2016 or something. I've never had it since. Um, but but yeah, I mean we we can move on to the the, the data and stuff in terms of like Gecko. But um, uh, yeah, it's it's it, I was I was literally it was it, it got unhealthy at one point. <laughs> What's amazing about that is. Is the it's in a way it's the the as you were saying the kind of the quality you know it's important that it looked good but the quality wasn't the thing stopping you from putting it out you were learning as you were producing and 
and you had a minimal viable product and you were getting audience kind of data and responses from that. And it's such a different way from the way kind of traditional uh, media would approach that. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure like now whether that level of quality would work. I, you know, if I was to do it again, I would I would go higher end. I wouldn't go like super high end. I'd still keep it as low cost as possible. But, you know, it's like an arms race on YouTube. The, 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 the quality has really, really just exponentially increased year over year. And you've got to kind of keep up with that. And, mm. and does that make it harder for people or has the technology also increased in terms of what that's capable of? So, so somebody could still um, build, a, build a channel from the ground up in the way that you've done and kind of learn as they were doing it. But the, the tools and the technology have vastly improved in the years since people were starting to sort of dabble with it. Yeah, I think um, it's difficult. I mean, the, the, the quality has sort of, you know, with, with people like Moonbug um, massively increased. You know, even you look at, you track Gecko over the years and look at it from the, the, the very first episode we did and then, you know, the last episode, um, they're, they're sort of light years apart. Um, and just the competition is so much more fierce on YouTube because then people are seeing it as such a great um, uh, platform to reach this this massive global audience. But then at the same time, you've got, you know, people like uh, Blue Zoo um, launching, using the Unreal Engine to do sort of uh, real-time rendering puppet show stuff, which looks absolutely amazing. So um, you're... The, the, what you've got to do is create stuff quickly and as cheaply as possible uh, at as good a quality as possible. And I think tools like that and, you know, not to get onto AI, but, you know, there is, there are ways to kind of, um, yeah, create shortcuts. And it's, qu it's quickly and consistently Christian, I suppose is the thing. Like, you know, like it doesn't, done is better than perfect. Yeah. If it's done, you know, done on a regular basis is better than perfect once, you know, and, it, and that's kind of a key thing to the success. This is it. Once once you're on that gravy train, like you've got to like keep going. And you know that that was one of my reasons for for exiting last year was I'd been releasing a brand new video every week for the last like eight years. And you know people talk about creator burnout, and it's like I, I get it. It's like mm -hmm. there's so much pressure to keep that um, beast fed. Otherwise, yeah. there's this mad panic. Your channel's going to like just drop off a cliff. Yeah. And and having spent that eight years working in and around YouTube, what are the things that you observed over that time? You know, what are the, what are the trends? What did you learn from actually being there in the weeds day in, day out? Um, that... Even the people who are experts at YouTube can't control the algorithm, you know? Um, that it's a roller coaster, you know? You'll wake up one day and your channel will have, your views will have cut in half and no one will know. Literally, no one will know why. There's nothing you've done wrong. And so many times over the years, this is like the pre Moonbug our channel basically looked like it was dying. And 
I think a lot of people do just give up at that point. And I think yeah. maybe it's the people who just keep feeding it and keep going and keep reiterating based upon the data that eventually succeed. But, you know, if anyone's getting into YouTube thinking they're going to be a millionaire in a year, they're wrong. It's like, it's, it's a proper long game. And how many years of Gecko's Garage, like were you slogging at Gecko's Garage before it was like, okay, we need to focus on this. This is a, this is a viable business. I mean, like it's definitely not one year and, and you know, it's, it's more like two, three, four, or was it beyond that for you? Um, so, I mean, it's like our channel, like the, the business itself was probably, you couldn't really call it profitable only because we can, myself and Emily, who, who were, um, is my wife and we were both doing the channel together. Um, we were committed to reinvesting everything we got. I mean, we like I say, we might have taken a, a bit out for a meal or something like that, but everything we put, we, we got out of YouTube, we were reinvesting to increase the quality of the content. So we never really got any profit out of the business and we were always just looking at growing the audience, growing the subscriber numbers. Um, but, you know, Gecko was, because we experimented with lots of different shows on the Toddler Fun Learning Channel. And they all kind of look different. And we did some nursery rhymes. Um, and we did a show called like the Zorbits and a few other things. But it wasn't until we actually launched Gecko's Garage back in like September 2015, that I knew literally that first episode, I knew looking at the data, that was the one. Uh, mm. So we, we immediately like doubled down on on that. And what was different about Gecko's Garage from the other ones? What would you put that down to? It was that the, the idea came about from a mix of the data. So looking on YouTube and seeing um, just how many views uh, trucks and vehicle shows were getting. But also on the flip side of that, seeing actually there wasn't, the right, there wasn't really that much competition. I mean, there was competition, but people were doing it badly. Um, they were just kind of, it, there wasn't really any characters in it. It was more kind of people just doing some 3D lorries, tipping out balls, you know, the stuff, right? And um, <laughs> driving around and just going, hey, dump truck. And, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> so I knew there was sort of a gap there. But at the same time, you know, I was looking at my son, who was like four at the time. He was like perfect age. And he just loved, he spent hours like lying on the carpet lining up his like dinky cars and trucks and stuff and just moving them around like and seeing how they the wheels moved like trying to open the bonnet and like trying to take them apart and so I knew there was this like fascination with like how vehicles work so I kind of put the two together and was like I think we need like a truck show where they just go through a garage and someone looks and fixes them up diagnose diagnoses the problem and fixes them up and sends them on their way like super simple um and I'm just like a sucker for alliteration. So people ask me like, why is he called um, Gecko? Or why is he a Gecko? And it was, I knew it had to I'm be like, a garage. I'm trying to know Rolodex, like, any other animal that like has. Me too. <laughs> giraffe, no. Gorilla's garage, oh, yeah, no, Gecko, way better. Gorilla's, um, I'm like, gorilla's Gary's garage. garage. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure Gary is like, you know. Yeah. Connotes yeah. hardcore, like child fun time um so yeah i mean um 
And then, like mm. I say, it kind of knew as soon as we put the first episode up, you could immediately see the views coming in far superior to um, to, to, to the others. And and how did the audience find Gecko's Garage then? You said you immediately knew from the first episode. Was that just based on the amount of subscribers that you'd got and to the channel, or did they find it? Did they discover it some uh, yeah, so, another way? So really, most. Um, Mm. Most viewers find videos on YouTube through like recommended. Um, mm. So rather than search, I think I think search makes up like made up like ten percent of our views. Maybe um, the rest of it really comes from um, recommended, which is what you see on the right hand side of the video you're watching at the time. Um, so if you if 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 you can sort of latch onto a trend that where there's other high performing videos, you're more likely to get, um, you know, views from that because, um, if you're some sort of small niche, then it might be difficult to sort of get, get, get a bigger audience. Makes sense. And then, so it it, it launched in 2015, like Gecko as like, as this kind of the standalone kind of IP and it built from there straight away. You could tell that it was something that was working. Um, and then obviously then the, the, a few years later, at least, the Moonbug opportunity came your way and, and that must have been very validating. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was kind of a weird, weird experience really because, um, yeah, we were approached by Moonbug about six months before the acquisition. It took us that long to kind of make a decision. I mean, we were, we were caught kind of totally off guard by it really. Um, like thinking back to that time, no one in the industry or like you know had had ever seen the mm. value of youtube native content and there was this kind of um i don't know like some some people i i detected a hint of snobbery about it like you know if you'd meet them um and it did get to me a bit but the moonbug when they approached mm. us were the first people who kind of said you there's value here you, you know and, and they they saw the value in what we created um and I, I mean, I knew that, like in my gut, that we were on something special. But you know, no one, no one had really told us, and and we certainly weren't looking to sell at the time. We were potentially thinking about raising some finance to take to the next level. But really, um, I mean, like it came around the time that I quit my day job to focus on it full time as well, which was quite good timing. Yeah. And had you had any conversations with like, because I feel like Moonbug and maybe Pocket Watch are like the next gen of like the MCNs that were there for a long time as well, like the multiple channel, net, uh, multi-channel networks. Had you had, had you had any conversations with that kind of an operation before? Or? We, we'd actually been with two MCNs, but they were useless. You know, the, the, you were dealing with people who knew less about YouTube than I did. And, they, and we were giving them 30% of our revenue. It's just like, right, how long is our contract? When can we get out of it? it was just, it was ridiculous. And and in terms of when that kind of moonbug decision was made, how did it how, how did it feel to do, obviously you'd been with the MCNs, but this must have felt a little bit different. Were you, were you like, I'm handing over my baby, or had you got to the point where actually you were you were ready to hand it over? Baby can go to uni. Baby can hey, go to yeah. uni. I'm done with baby. <laughs> it was no, I wasn't ready to hand it over when they approached us. Um, but the more I talked to them and the more we thought about it, 
you know, you couldn't argue with the talent they had on board. They just like their their brains are just they they get it. You know, um, they their values as well. That we share the same values about um, educating as well as just creating great content, um, moral values, and I think that the the strategy they had behind them. I could also see that the way the industry was going in a way that if we didn't um, go with the acquisition, they were just going to become this big sort of of behemoth, Mm. which they kind of have done. And people who were kind of just independent channel makers might get left behind. So Mm. um, there there was a lot of points going into the decision, but ultimately I, I definitely think we made the right choice. And also that you were part of it as well. It wasn't like you were handing it off and goodbye and see you later. You got to still be part of it. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And do you see that that's happened over, again, your time on YouTube? There's There's been this um, kind of combining, this acquisition sprees by the likes of Moonbug that, you know, is it is it polarizing? You've got the big companies on YouTube and the small creators now, whereas when you first started, it was kind of like, Everybody's a creator together. Um, it's yeah, it's definitely it's definitely harder to cut through if you're an independent creator. Um, and when I speak to people about you know what their kids are watching on YouTube if they're like four or five, uh, and they find out that you know that I made Gecko, um, I'll say, oh, what what do your kids watch? And they go, oh, uh, they watch. Cocomelon, they watch Blippi, <laughs> they watch uh, T-Rex Ranch maybe, and they watch, um, uh, you know, basically, it was all, it's all Moonbug shows. Yeah. And so I think Moonbug have done an amazing job of once your child watches one thing from their portfolio, they're very good at keeping you mm-hmm. in their ecosystem. Interesting, and this uh, this may be a question that um, you might not want to answer. Um, but were there, in terms of that working relationship with Moonbug, were there any areas where you disagreed with kind of what they wanted to do with the channel, uh, and how how did that kind of collaboration work? Were there any points where actually there were a difference of opinion? Um, I mean, there's definitely differences of opinion. Uh, I guess how, the question is how that, how was going from somewhere where you're completely in charge of all of those decisions to where it's more of a kind of collaboration? Uh, how did, how did that work? Yeah. Like I think like the relationship was, 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 was actually surprisingly great for, for the four years we did it. I think, um, and at that time, I was kind of sick of doing it by myself before, mm. before Moonbug. So to actually have this team on board and, and, and for them to go, right, you're going to be working with a proper like, studio. You're going to be, you're going to have like production designer. You're going to have, oh, you know, you're going to have a producer. <laughs> what? Oh, my God, that's amazing. Um, to do all this stuff, it was like I was working in a, in a team and I got on with that team uh, brilliantly. So, yeah, there was definitely like points of... Um, of creative difference but I was generally pretty chilled about it really um they knew what they were talking about 
And at the same time, you know, I knew what the heart of the show was. So I think my job was to kind of retain the heart of the show. And if they wanted to tweak with the formula a, a bit, I, I generally thought that they, they knew what they were talking about. And, 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 I, thought, and I think the, the growth over the last four years is, is testament to that, really. And, and what does the future hold for you? Where, where are you at now? Are you still creating? Is it something that you're taking a break from? What's... What's on your horizon? Um, yeah, I've, I've taken a break for the last six months. Um, I mean, one, one of the re reasons for, again, like exiting is, it sounds cliche, but to spend more time with, with the family. You know, the whole, this whole thing started because of my kids. And, uh, you know, I, I turned around, you know, last year and I saw Josh was like 12 and thinking, oh my God, um, I need to actually make the most of, of their their childhood and uh so i was i was you know lucky enough to be able to kind of make that call um so i'm, I'm interested in i think there's a lot of businesses and studios out there who are maybe producing content for terrestrial and i think maybe want to dip their toe in the youtube water um and maybe don't know how to go about it so maybe some sort of like consulting for for those sort of companies see if i can help them make that transition um i'm also interested in talking to sort of smaller kids youtube channels who maybe need some help professionalizing their content working on a youtube strategy as well um who maybe want to kind of have one eye on an eventual exit in the future to one of these bigger companies um and i've got some ideas for for my own sort of new IP as well. If I, if I've got the stomach to, <laughs> to, go, to go down that route. I've, yeah. I'm not Maybe sure. Give it that. another six months and see how I, you feel. I think so. Yeah. Before I start having to commit to a, a, a video. Weekly a week. schedule again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If you were going to do it all again now, well, this is obviously the crux of it. What would you do and, and what platform? But I mean, obviously don't tell us your, your proprietary ideas, but you know, it's such a different landscape now. Mm -hmm. Would you go TikTok? Like, like what, what do you see? Where do you see the opportunities? Um, I think there are definitely opportunities in, in short form. I, yeah, I'm not sure if I kind of want to necessarily get I worry about kids' attention spans. Um, certainly my own kids' attention spans. I'm not sure if I want to get involved in feeding that YouTube shorts um, swiping thing, you know? Uh, I don't know, but... I, I, I do like, uh, I mean, I'm watching my kids now and they're, they're not just wanting to watch stuff, they're wanting to interact and um, obsessed with Roblox. Um, and I'm really interested in like the Fortnite creator um, platform. Um, I know nothing about computer games. I know nothing about development, but storytelling in that sort of environment does interest me. Mm. So I'd like to dig a bit more into, into that. Amazing. And I mean, one of the things we've talked about a couple of times on the podcast is whether whether kind of Roblox is where YouTube was mm -hmm. um, uh, ten years ago or so, and the kind of that and that space where you can get individual creators come in and and explode. Um, potentially, the the conditions are, uh, are better on Roblox to allow that, whereas. YouTube now might be more dominated by kind of bigger players. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it certainly feels that way. I think if you've, if you still, if you've got the right idea, the right IP, um, and you can produce something at scale economically, I still think, you know, YouTube is a great place to do that. I still think you could do that. And I, and I would like to have like probably one more roll of the dice to see if you could do it again, um, yeah. with the right idea. And but, yeah. And do you think that YouTube is, do you think it's a, a safer space for younger audiences than we mentioned TikTok and some of the other platforms as well? Um, do you think, um, do you think YouTube is kind of a better place to, to grow that preschool or quite young content? Um, well, YouTube's definitely just further down the track. They've got, you know, the YouTube Kids app um, and they have, they've had to tighten all the regulation, right? So um, it, it does feel safer than it, than it ever has done. Um, whereas I think there are concerns still around, um, you know, I mean, Preschoolers shouldn't even aren't even allowed to use TikTok, right? I mean, they, they yeah. I mean, the, the, most of the kind of the social apps um, they have a kind of a, an age limit or an understanding that um, it shouldn't go that young. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think yeah, it's just where kids are still. Like YouTube, certainly the the sort of three to five age group are still watching YouTube, um, and you know the numbers that. I think Moonbugger getting us still like astonishing, right? Yeah, definitely. And going from and going from strength to strength, and in in lots of cases, you know what I mean. It's like how big can it get? Um, yeah. I mean, and, and what's the data on whether? Because now there's more and more opportunities for people just to decide to view YouTube as a channel on their TV. Um, is there data on whether that's become more of people's viewing habits? Whether um, watching YouTube more on you know in your living room on the tv is that becoming more of a um a thing that people do or i think it's gradually increased over the last you know five six years as you know smart tvs have come out so most tvs now have youtube inbuilt right uh but i still think for like a three or four year old they they don't feel like they have the level of control that they have watching it as opposed to watching an iPad, which they can touch and um, interact with in a sort of much more user-friendly way than just using a TV remote. So I think, you know, kids still are watching on, on phones and, and, and tablets. Well, the thing is that they, they continue to watch it on phones, but actually that, that the data I've seen is that connected TV um, access has grown and grown and, mm. and, and it has grown to a level that it will, it rivals the other, it absolutely rivals the other streamers. Yeah. Um, it's like the latest data I saw from the US. It was it was the top of all of them, from the Nielsen gauge, like eight point five percent of viewing versus I think Netflix was seven point nine, the next biggest. Disney Plus was one point eight um, percentage. So, you, mobile is still there, but connected TV is just growing on top of it. Like, yeah, yeah. How much icing do you want on your cake? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about how the data was used to make the show? Um, so basically, even back in the early days, when the, the, the most valuable analytic that I would look at, like two or three days after a, a video is launched, was um, audience retention. So literally, it's just a, a graph that you can see. So you basically can play the video in real time, and you can see the points at which the audience drops off. 
So it's a really useful kind of tool for analyzing your episode and seeing what works and what doesn't, right? So if you've got a big drop off right at the beginning in the first like 15 seconds, probably tells you that your video isn't hooking the audience right from the word go and your intro's too long. You know, I see some some videos where maybe like uh, someone's taken something from TV and put it on YouTube and they've got the full intro, the TV yeah. intro, you know, and you're like... With all the logos. Yeah, with all the logos. You're like, that's yeah. three seconds. Like, you need to be like maybe a five-second sting if you want one right at the beginning and then get straight into the meat of the content. Um, but there was like one particular, I think it was like the sixth episode of, of Gecko, where he builds a car wash on like the side of the, the garage. And uh, I think it's like a four minute video and you have a bus drive through the car wash for 20 seconds of the app. And the video did well. And I was looking at the, the, the data, the audience retention. And there's a little point where the, the graph, the line actually went up. So normally it just kind of, you slowly lose viewers, right? Hopefully mm. not, not super quickly, but, um, and there's this little point where there was a, there's a peak. And what I found was that meant that viewers were going back and rewatching the scene over and over again. So the next video put into production was, um, literally just 10 vehicles going through the car wash, getting, getting muddy, going through the car wash, Gecko had to clean them again, literally on loop. Uh, but it was, it, they were different vehicles. It was different scripts and stuff. And, you know, I think that video got like a million views in the first few days. It was bonkers. Yeah. And I think that still maybe is our, our most popular yeah. video. Really. And that's kids, right? Like that's the kids who like we're dealing with today. It's like they didn't just grow up with TV on demand. Like they didn't just go up with like whatever channel they wanted to watch. They grew up with TV on demand. They grew up with being able to watch what episode of what show they want to watch. They would get to watch what section of what episode of what show that they want to watch. You know, like... They've always had that at their fingertips um, and that's their expectation. And that's such a that's such a different and a kind of a uniquely it's such a different way of producing content because traditionally you'd have produced 52 animated episodes. They've gone out and you'd have got feedback after the 52 episodes had been produced and broadcast. Um, whereas what you're describing there is you get feedback on episode three, say, and then you feed that um, feedback into episode four. And, and that's exactly that's crazy. That's one of, one of the sort of tips I'd get, give people if they were starting a YouTube channel, like taking it seriously and investing properly in the content was, would be, you know, you, you don't want to have a long production window. So you want kind of two or three months max from like start to finish per app. Because otherwise, you know, if you've got, 10 episodes out there with this character maybe that you've seen in your audience retention that isn't popular or, or you know, you've, your audience is turning off when you brought this new character in and he's like a big part in the next, like the rest of the season. Yeah, you're kind of like, oh God, I need to like change tack and you need to be nimble to kind of be able to make those changes before you get too committed, right? Yeah, yeah. And is it like, I can imagine the example of the bus, like the, the car wash being... I can imagine I can imagine that being a big pop, but are are you able to mine those kind of insights on YouTube to that extent, or is it you know because I can't usually like you say it's just a not like a gradual a gradual decline because people just stop watching you know that's just that's just natural, but you're you're you said it sounds like you're really able to see some of the specifics you know 
in the data, which isn't always, which is kind of a privilege because usually data can be kind of a bit more gradual. Yeah, I mean, you can you can see where they're coming from. So what videos are recommending them uh, to, to come to, to your to land on your video? You can see sort of search terms. But most importantly, yeah, is, is, is the engagement stuff. So, mm. you know, a, a good example would be I, I, I obsessed with the thumbnails because because I was so close to each episode. I knew the story inside out and I knew what we needed to kind of sell, if you like. Mm. In a, if you're looking at like literally a, a thumbnail, quite small on a phone. You need to kind of convey what that this this episode is about in a fun, engaging, like super vibrant way. Um and then you kind of look at the click-through rate uh, data. So, mm. you know, and if we were getting below, you know, like a 8% click-through rate, that kind of wasn't really good enough. That was below benchmark. Yeah, you'd kind of just, you'd, you'd change the thumbnail. It's fine. You can change the thumbnail as many times as you like. I think yeah. Mr. Beast does about maybe 10 different thumbnails and then kind of swaps them out and sees what, sees what works. So you're basically like A-B testing in the real world. Yeah. The thumbnail question I, I find kind of fascinating between YouTube and the other big streamers because YouTube is, I always say it's kind of, it came up on a social platform, whereas the other streamers are kind of evolved from telly and they're evolved from like EPGs. And the thumbnails, like, th that's one of the reasons I think YouTube is so successful even now within connected TVs, etc., is because, and, and, and why discovery on YouTube is much more stress-free for a user because of things like the thumbnails. And like the thumbnails... They're not pretty, like they're kind of like like stickery, you know what I mean? Like the, the good ones and they've got and usually it's the character and it's like maybe a bit of text and like some sort of fun prop or that denotes the episode. And you'd never see that on a Netflix or, or a Disney Plus. It was just so pe people would say it would look too messy. But equally, like YouTube on Discovery on YouTube is much more, much more seamless for users. And I think it's because of reasons like that, that you're able to kind of. I don't know, maybe that's accepted within the kind of the visual the visual vernacular of the platform. But yeah, it's just it's a funny one to think of because I've I've heard on, on, on the other streamers that producers are ne are required to deliver th like I ha I have heard thousands of thumbnails. <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, that's only something I've heard in passing. But, you know, that the thumbnail, the algorithm will decide if you are a person who clicks more on like uh, a, a script, like a like a headshot of somebody you'll go or if they if they're trying to sell that actor they'll make sure they have you know a version of that of that show thumbnails that has that actor but it still doesn't seem to be it still doesn't seem to have the same impact as as, as it does on youtube as in the same success no i, I remember looking when when gecko went on uh netflix um i remember looking at how it looked on the tv and stuff and then you go into the episode selection and I was like really surprised because the thumbnails were literally just, you know, screenshots from random points in the episode. Basically how YouTube used to be like 10 years ago, you know, when you had to use literally just a screenshot from the episode itself rather than creating something bespoke in Photoshop or whatever. And, you know, I was just like, I was really surprised that they didn't allow you to or, or they didn't want you to create something a bit more kind of bespoke for each episode uh, thumbnail, you know. Interesting. Um, I think one final question we were, were going to ask you and whether you had any thoughts on that was what the key trends you saw for the future of kids' content production um, was. Yeah, I think like I've, I've spoken to uh, a bunch of kind of young creators um, in the last sort of month um, 
people are kind of creating stuff, not 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 necessarily kids stuff on YouTube. You know, these are people who are like 20, 21, and they call themselves like digital nomads. And, you know, they're just having a great time traveling the world and like with a laptop and kind of creating content, working with different studios. Um, and, you know, one of them's like creating animated content for, uh, not, for not for kids. Um, and, you know, the prices they're creating this content for is staggeringly cheap. Um, and they, what I learned was they're not afraid of AI. They are totally embracing all of these new tools that are out there. Mm. And that, you know, you see all these conversations on LinkedIn and stuff, and it's all like people scared about like AI and is it going to take jobs and all sort of stuff. And whereas this generation that's coming up as YouTube creators are going, well, we'll just use it. I, I mean, I thought I was kind of slightly revolutionary eight years ago, putting stuff on YouTube, just using stuff like, Adobe character animator and doing using a webcam to animate Gecko. I mean, he didn't even have legs. He was literally he was just fixed in position, and you know, creating stuff for like super cheap per episode. Um, but it's like a totally different league. So I think you're going to see these guys kind of explode, uh, creating content uh, for super cheap using these amazing new tools that are, that are around. So it'll be interesting. To see. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we've discussed AI on the on the podcast and on LinkedIn and stuff. There's a lot of copyright issues around that, which I totally appreciate for the people that whose work might have been fed into the machine without compensation. There are some maybe copyright issues that need to be uh, addressed yeah, there. Absolutely. Um, uh, but it's one of those things where the genie's out of the bottle, right? Um, oh, yeah, but, but uh, I, I always compare it to YouTube, where I remember when YouTube first launched and you'd get loads of people saying, Copyright won't exist on YouTube. Yeah. Um, just suck it up. It, it's all changed. And, you know, YouTube then got around to kind of being very particular about pulling down content that was being challenged legally. And, uh, and, so, and so I think, that, you know, there'll be, there's so many people with different vested interests that uh, it kind of warrants everyone having a bit of a Barney and, and find it out. And then something will be resolved or compromised totally. at the end of it. But I do think that, well, like there, that that area of it is 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 problematic and it needs to be addressed. But the bottom line is, if people use AI for what it's for, which is, you know, creating their vision or their creative content, you know, and like a, 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 and riffing on their kind of their their, you know, what their what their what their vision is, um, and it's just a shortcut to getting that actual actualized. Then yeah, the the potential of it is obviously it's it's obviously huge, and that is kind of you would hope is the more prevalent use of it there will always be copyright you know and that's always going to be an, an issue yeah absolutely and, and if it if it helps to you know to take away the stuff that's tedious and takes everyone a long time to do which there's tons of those factors in animation then but that is the loss of jobs though it it is i think i i look back i think back to when i was like a one-man band sort of doing this and you know sat at my kitchen table trying to think of ideas and you know for the next episode and stuff and you know, I didn't have the luxury that I did later on of having this great team around me. You know, I think, you know, using something like a chat GPT for brainstorming and um, coming up with these concepts, if you are kind of by yourself um, and you don't have the luxury of this this team around you, is useful to a point. Um, and I think kind of then fleshing it out mm. by yourself um, just to get something down. Because I, I always find that the, the hardest part for me creatively 
is to get something down on the page or yeah. on the sketchbook or something. And then you can reiterate. At least you've got something to go off. And I think that's where it, it helps out just to get something down that you can then like totally tweak and, and adapt. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and it, and it needs to have that kind of human fingerprint on it. Otherwise it, end, otherwise it can all end up looking yeah. very similar. Yeah. yeah, which is what we definitely don't want. I think that's a wonderful place to to end it. Um, so thanks so much time for you, so much for your time, Christian. It's been a really fascinating conversation. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks again to Christian for being such a great guest on the podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe so you don't miss a future episode.